This is the Wealth Standard Radio, your gold standard in everything financial. Welcome to uh, the Wealth Standard Radio. This is Patrick Donahoe. And I don't get overly excited for podcasts. Actually, I kind of do. But today I am definitely more excited than, uh, than normal uh, because of the guest that, uh, that we have. His name is Matt Kirkhoff. He's the Chief Investment Strategist at uh, Model Investing. And we are going to be talking about uh, NERP 2. We already did NERP 1 a couple weeks ago. We're going to do NERP 2. And uh, so it sounds like a video game, not a video game. NERP is a uh, negative interest rate policy, but uh, but Matt Matt is the guy to talk about this, and uh, and so we'll we'll get to his background in just a uh, in just a second. So you'll learn why he's the guy to talk about uh, to talk really reality as as opposed to uh, speculation and conjecture about uh, about NERP. Uh, so, but before I introduce him again, I, I, I'm going to introduce you some uh, Paradigm Life resources that we mention every time. Uh, our our new e-learning program is up. On our website, paradigmlife.net, we'll put some links in the show notes. And uh, we also have a, a new real estate investing section in there and uh, also a special section for clients. And so if you uh, have some time and uh, you want to educate yourself, great place, uh, great place to do so. And also we, uh, we started a, a Facebook, private Facebook page just for clients. So those of you who are, have done business with Paradigm Life, uh, email us at clients at paradigmlife.net and we'll get you access to uh, that private community a lot of cool exchange and collaboration going on, uh, and it's a great way to, to ask questions and to also, you know, you too, collaborate with, uh, with like-minded people. Okay, so Matt, what's going on, man? How you doing? Pretty good, Patrick. How about you? It's good to be with you. I know. Same, same here. I love, to, I love talking with you. You're, smart, you're a smart guy, but let me give, a, give our audience kind of a, your, your background. So first, you, you really started in... Uh, I mean, for you, I mean, you have, you have a degree in, you know, the, the business business side of things and have a background in data analytics and model and statistical modeling. Uh, but you you had an awesome opportunity to learn from one of the best uh, writer, financial writers uh, in the business, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Richard Russell, who, who passed away uh, last last year. But uh, he, you know, currently the Dow Theory Letter, which he started, is the is you know correct me if I'm wrong, the longest running financial uh, publication in uh, that it's that's uh, there today. Correct? Yeah, you're correct, and um, still going strong um, even without Mr. Russell. It's uh, it's been a kind of a tumultuous last year or so, uh, but you're right. I was very blessed. Um, I sort of have the the classical you know business school training. Um, but a lot of that doesn't necessarily apply to the financial markets. <laughs> and so Richard was a, was a blessing um, in that his focus was actually just watching and studying the markets for the last 60 years. And over that time, he'd seen a lot of changes, and uh, he was able to, um, to distill a lot of that information um, very succinctly, and, uh, and I was able to learn a lot uh, from, his, from his rich history. So yeah, that was... That was uh, sort of one of the key kind of turning points in, in my career. Yeah, and, and looking at the idea of mentorship and learning from those who have walked the walk, you know, it's it, there's no there's nobody better, especially in that uh, that business. And you kind of took the reins and have a lot that you've written about over the last uh, last several years, uh, and that caught the attention of uh, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. You've been on his radio program a, a number of times. Uh, most often with with uh, Andy Tanner, really talking about you know what's going on in markets 
and you know strategies, theories, and so forth. What's been, what's your experience? What's your experience been like on Rich Dad Radio? You know, th- those guys are a lot of fun. Um, we tend to see things quite differently, <laughs> and um, it's it, it's entertaining because I think I get brought on the show because of my my somewhat unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, which really isn't that unique at all. Um, I, I feel like their perspectives are often the ones that are kind of, uh, you know, further away from the norm. Uh, but it always makes some really interesting, interesting conversation. And um, Andy and Robert are both brilliant guys. and they, they always have a ton to add to the conversation. I bet. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's entertaining to listen to you guys. I mean, there's a lot of information that's, that's exchanged. But, you know, to your credit, being able to, you know, understand certain things and then formulate an opinion and defend that opinion, you know, you've done a great job at, uh, at that. And I know that, you know, the blogging that you've done, the articles that you've written, you've had to do that a lot, especially with those that may disagree with your perspective, perspective on things. Um, but really it's a testament to kind of what you, what you've done. Um, but yeah, I mean, and today that's kind of what I'm hoping for because, you know, really, you know, my philosophy is, you know, I don't care who's right. All I care about is, is knowing what's right, knowing what the, what the truth is. And oftentimes, you know, truth gets, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're polarized with rhetoric, which clouds truth, right? And really getting to the heart of the matter, understanding something is really what allows us to, you know, pierce through that, that cloud. And so negative interest rate policy has really been uh, used and, um, you know, in, in a sense to, you know, sell newsletters or sell gold or, or get people kind of riled up. And, you know, it's a marketing tactic and a lot of that's used in other, you know, with, with other topics. Uh, but certainly with NERP, because it is something that's relatively new because of Janet Yellen mentioning it, you know, it's, it's gotten, you know, people in a, in a, you know, in a, in a tip. So, so I, I can't wait to talk to you about, uh, about that, but let's, let's talk about our backgrounds and how I met you. So we met on the, the summit at sea, right. And that was, uh, I think two, two, yeah. two years ago, 2000, 2014. Uh, what are, what are your memories of the summit at sea? You, we had a good time. <laughs> Well, that was that was the first uh, cruise I had actually ever been on, um, and so so my biggest concern was that I was going to spend the entire week uh, uh, trying to give presentations while while trying not to not to throw up. Um, but it turned out to be an, an awesome experience. Um, Love the uh, the real estate guys, and uh, the the caliber of professional that was on that cruise was uh, was pretty pretty amazing. Um, I, I enjoyed meeting meeting everyone, and actually I learned quite a bit during that that one week time, and uh, I got to see a couple of sweet places around the world. No, cruising is, it's one of those like, cat. I, I don't know if I would go on a cruise, like, you know, for le- like a leisure, you know, a leisure break, but still it's like one of those, it's, it's almost a, almost right. A perfect environment for that type of event, right? Because you're, you're forced to collaborate. You're forced to meet new people. You're forced to have conversations, right. And you don't have really a, much escape, you know, plus you're, you know, you have tons of food and you have cool places and, you know, people that, you know, have to actually flip a pretty high bill to actually go. So it creates kind of a good caliber of people so that you're not having, you know, superficial conversations. Yeah. And, and the fact that you're cut off from the rest of the world, uh, more or less, um, really gives you time to actually reflect uh, on sort of what's going on. Um, it's like pushing the pause button. You actually get a chance to kind of sit back and think. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I get a kick out of that. Cool. Yeah, we, I think we met like the first or second day. And it was like right off the bat, we started talking about the Fed and monetary policy. And then Peter, Peter Ship was on this cruise. And so we went into, you know, what we disagreed a bit about with, uh, with him, which was, which was very similar. Uh, and then we got to be on a panel kind of debating him, which it's kind of hard to, hard to debate in that type of environment with, with limited time. But 
but still, it was a cool, cool experience on that front to kind of, you know, sync up with you, learn about, you know, learn about you, you learn about what you do, learn about your perspective on things. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, what's going to be cool about our conversation today. So, you know, so a couple of weeks ago, you know, we talked uh, about, you know, what NERP was, what negative interest rate policy was, um, why it was mentioned by Janet Yellen, uh, what, what countries are currently using it, what countries have used it in the past, uh, you know, what their results were. And then we kind of started to speculate on what the results in the U.S. would be. So when you, you know, when you kind of heard about NERP and negative interest rates, I mean, what, what type of you know analysis did you do? What type of things did you learn to kind of you know see see what it was and you know why the Fed was using this tool, which is probably one of their last tools, right, to essentially uh, help aggregate demand and and uh, you know stimulate stimulate things. Uh, that's a that's a hell of a question. Um, <clears throat> so it's it's interesting because as someone who is sort of classically trained in uh, in modern finance. Um, you learn that everything hinges on what's called the risk-free rate. And ultimately, this is the, the prevailing interest rates um, that governments, which are theoretically uh, you know, the safest lenders in the world, uh, lend money at. And that sort of sets a base rate for, for all other borrowing uh, with an economy. And so it was interesting, during all my, my uh, years in college and during my MBA program, uh, the subject of ne- negative interest rates actually never came up. Wow, uh, it's something that that wasn't really discussed with with uh, any legitimacy or seriousness until um, just a couple of years ago. Um, it had been tried a few times in the past um, for, for for different sort of uh, event driven crises, uh, but nothing long term, and definitely not on the scale that we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. So you look at now, you know, wh- why would you know? Because because you look at the philosophy of of the Fed. I mean, let's maybe start with that. Like, what are they? With all the different, you know, QE programs, with you know the different tools that they have, whether it's you know open market operations uh, or you know bond buying, the, Q, the QE side of things, setting benchmark interest rates. What like what are they what are they trying to accomplish? Like with with everything that they've done, what are you know just generally speaking, what are they you know what are they trying to accomplish? Well, ultimately, uh, modern economy uh, modern economies these days are are almost entirely based on credit. And so um, what we really see is sort of this link between the credit cycle and the business cycle. And so the, what the Fed is, is constantly trying to do is really, is really stimulate the economy by encouraging people to essentially borrow and then spend and invest. Mm-hmm. Um, that creates more economic activity um, and it has a lot, of, a lot of positive sort of secondary effects. And so what we've seen uh, over the last three decades or so is that the Federal Reserve, their, their primary mechanism for sort of juicing the economy, if you will, is to lower interest rates. Mm-hmm. And they've done this uh, more or less sequentially over the last 30 years. Um, if you look at a, a chart that shows the yield on, on the 10-year Treasury, uh, over the past three decades, it's been slowly declining. And this has continually acted as, a, as sort of a tailwind for the economy because essentially money has continued to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper for the last 30 years or so. Um, and now we've, we find ourselves in this interesting environment where um, interest rates, at least at the, the short end of the yield curve, um, hit zero in countries pretty much all around the world. And, and now we're seeing some countries actually take that rate into, into negative territory. So, but what's interesting is there's sort of two sides to this, to this whole discussion. One is what the central banks around the world are doing, and the other is what global investors are doing. 
because if, if interest rates are only negative at, at very short durations, short maturities, we could blame that completely on the central banks because they're responsible and they exert a lot of influence over those short rates. But the fact that we're seeing, for example, Japan's 10-year go negative, even their 20-year is dipping negative. Um, same thing with, with Germany, their 10-year is negative. Um, these longer-term bonds are really controlled not by the central banks, but by the global investor community. And so we're seeing sort of the, the global investor community and central banks on the same side, just really pushing rates uh, to, to rock bottom levels and below. So what you mean by, all right, so what you be, mean by it's the global, it's the global idea is that you have, you know, governments purchasing because they don't really have another safe place to put their, their financial resources. They, they basically buy, they, they put it into whether it's, it's treasuries um, or the, the bond, you know, the 10-year the and the 30-year note, you know, they put them into these, you know, longer term because it's a safe, it's a safe haven where they, they're going to lose a little bit, okay, but it's worth losing some to have a safe place to have the money where you're not going to lose more. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, you're, you're correct. What's happening is that uh, global investors around the world are recognizing that the, the prospects for growth, uh, some place, some asset class that they can put their money and experience a relatively safe uh, risk to reward trade-off, uh, those areas have evaporated. Yeah. And so when you see uh, a global financial environment that, that looks you know, risky at best, um, you're right. A lot of these bigger institutional investors are saying, hey, look, I'm just going to lock in a small loss because at least it's a small loss. Mm -hmm. They're essentially telling you that, that, that they're, they're happier taking that small loss than risking their money uh, for a possible big loss somewhere else. Yep. And that's kind of again, it's counter counterintuitive to what the you know these central banks really want because they want they want people to invest, they want people to you know start businesses, uh, invest in infrastructure, you know imp improve warehouses, improve factories, but they're not doing it right. So now you have you know people that are just like uh, I'm going to take a loss, but I'm not going to invest because because of what like what why aren't they investing? You know, at the end of the day, it just comes down to there are not that many lucrative places to put your money anymore. And, and one of the sort of the key things that underpins this is confidence. Um, lending takes two parties. Uh, you have to have an institution that's willing to lend and you have to have a borrower, either an individual or a company that wants money because they believe they can use that money productively uh, to generate value. And so if, if either one of those parties um, loses, all, I'm just going to call it confidence, yeah. um, in their ability to either make a loan and have it repaid or to take a loan and use it productively to earn additional money. If either of those scenarios don't exist, then you see this sort of this lackluster lending environment, which is, which is what we're seeing. Uh, even though money is essentially free, even though borrowers are in many places being actually paid to take money, um, they don't really care to. In a lot of cases, <laughs> so it's quite, it's it's this this conundrum, right? Of you know, it's the the monetary you know monetary policy around the world, which I you know for for all intents and purposes is very similar. Is you know is it, trying to push is trying to influence behavior to do something, but it's not working, right? So looking at the the negative interest rate side of things. That's that's where you know people just want to keep liquidity, keep their money safe, even if it incurs uh, incurs a loss. So, looking at you know Janet Yellen's comment, 
I mean, they, they're, again, still trying to effectively create more demand because more demand is basically, you know, you, you invest and you uh, create products and people spend. And then the velocity side of things takes you know, money and it goes from one hand to the other, to the other, to the other. But it's, but it's not happening. Volatility is really low. So, so she mentions, you know, if we have to go to negative interest rate policy, we will do that. So, so in a sense, you know, what, what, am, what am I missing, right? Because I say, well, you've tried it with low interest rates. Going negative, is it really going to suddenly flip the light switch on and say, all right, man, it's negative. I'm going to, you know, I am going to go out and invest all my invest money. You know, or am I missing? Am I missing something? Because logically, that's kind of what I what I come to the conclusion of. No, I, you're 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 dead on, and, and that's that's a conclusion that a lot of people are are coming to. Um, when you consider that, uh, let's take for example the last two uh, recessions that we had. Um, during those two periods, in order to to sort of um, stave off uh, the longer lasting effects of those recessions, uh, the central bank in the U.S. dropped interest rates by over five percentage points both times. Uh, I believe it was five point one percent back in the uh, in the dot com collapse and five point two percent just recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are big moves. Um, and admittedly, we dealt with the financial crisis was was you know perhaps the biggest catastrophe catastrophe we've seen you know in, in many decades. So, so it, it was absolutely warranted, but it makes you wonder now, um, we're sitting you know, with interest rates roughly a, a quarter of a point. Um, even if they were to go into negative territory, we're, we don't have that much room to go. Um, because at some point, uh, interest rates, so far we've seen them go moderately negative. Um, no one has sort of had the guts to push them uh, deeply negative. Um, and part of the reason is because there are concerns that people will start to do things such as hoarding cash. Yep. Um, you might actually get the, the, the reverse effect because people are going to start pulling their money out of banking institutions, at least the smaller individuals, mm-hmm. um, and stuff it under a mattress, um, as opposed to paying the bank to continue to hold it for them. Yep. And that's the confidence um, issue, right? That, that is the confidence issue, exactly. And so, and so you're right. Um, you know, the, it, even if we are willing to go to negative interest rates, it's not like that adds a huge buffer. Um, but the reason I think the Fed is, is starting to prepare or at least um, discuss the possibility is because um, it's all about perception. Um, if the central bank does need to go into negative rate territory, uh, they don't want that by itself to indicate to, to the markets that everything is lost and that this is, you know, absolutely we're blazing a trail that we've never considered before. Um, so in a sense, they're sort of preparing the markets, I believe. So do you think markets are priced right now for negative interest rates? Uh, that's a good question. Because <laughs> um, typically markets are priced in advance, right? So if there's, you know, this announcement that, you know, the Fed's going to do this or this, this is going to happen here or whatever. I mean, if, if there is a, a drop or a big gain, it means that it, the market hadn't priced it, right? So, so do you, I mean, I mean what, what's your, what are your thoughts on the market being priced for negative interest rates? I don't think I wouldn't say the market as a whole is is priced um, for a certainty of negative interest rates. I would say some people probably are positioned that way, um, and some people are probably hedging for that that type of scenario. Uh, but at least in the U.S., I don't think we are on the precipice of negative rates quite yet. Um, and, and the primary reason I'll, I'll point to is what we're seeing with inflation figures. Um, inflation is by no means robust. Um, your headline inflation figures are running right around a percent. 
Um, but core inflation levels, uh, which exclude food and energy, are designed to be less volatile measures of inflation, um, are actually rising. The CPI, core CPI has been over 2% um, for, I believe, the last six or seven months. And we're seeing a distinct upward trend in the, in actually all the measures of inflation. So they're still low and muted. Um, and we obviously have a lot of headwinds and a lot of global uncertainty there that could keep, you know, inflation uh, suppressed. And if that's the case, then we'll probably see more people prepare for, for a negative interest rate environment here in the U.S. Um, but for every person that's preparing for negative interest rates, I think there are still people out there who believe that inflation is actually going to show itself. Um, and if, if inflation does show itself, then we're actually going to see the long end of the yield curve uh, actually move move up slightly. Okay. Um, it's going to be uh, it's actually going to be a little bit of a, a favorable um, development. Um, but the, but the, the bad side is that it's probably going to re- it's probably going to end up with with lower bond prices and a, and then consequently lower stock prices if we do see that scenario. So all right, so looking at looking at those looking at those scenarios. So, you know, if you, if you look at the Fed, they want, they want inflation, right? They want, they're trying to create growth, right? They're like, you know, kryptonite is, is deflation, right? We they, don't want, they don't want prices going down, right? You're right. We, we are a debt-ridden society, and uh, every time we borrow, we're basically pulling forward future consumption. And so the way that we sort of alleviate this is we inflate away our debts, um, that way we can kind of keep, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can keep the, the cycle going. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, the Fed and all these central banks around the world, everything that they're doing is really geared uh, primarily towards stoking inflation. We need to inflate away some of the debt that we find ourselves with, and that will allow us to continue this credit expansion process and keep the economy. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it's, isn't it somewhat contradicting? Well, it, it, is, it, is, a, it is a contradiction because if you look at like right now, you know, with the debt that we carry, we're still going in or deficit spending, you know, a trillion dollars a year. So it's like, you know, it makes sense if if we were, you know, net zero as far as spending is concerned. But, you know, because they would be, you know, inflation would cause the current debt to be cheaper. But yet we still keep going into debt. Right. So isn't isn't that kind of a contradiction to, you know, the, the notion of them wanting to continue to have prices rise? It, it, it's a complete contradiction. Um, economies grow through through basically an expansion of credit, uh, but that credit actually acts in sort of a deflationary way. It puts a crimp on future productivity because we have to pay back. We have to service all that debt. Um, so so inflation sort of becomes the the uh, the other component to that process where we're going. Okay, we're constantly expanding our debt. But once we've accumulated and acquired that debt, we sort of uh, inflate its real value away. And that allows us to basically be at a point where, okay, the debt load is not so bad, even though our, our figures are higher, our actual debt figures are higher, it's not as overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, that, so then we can keep, essentially, we can keep down that process of, of credit expansion, which is, which is helping to keep the, the business cycle expanding. So maybe another curveball, dude. I'm, I'm just throwing. So, so if you look at, so if you look at the total, like total money supply, Right. Because I know you have a lot of you have like trillions in excess reserves, but you look at like the total money supply and, you know, this idea of creating more and more demand. It, it Does there come a point where there's just not enough stuff to because stuff is what creates inflation, right? You have to buy things that can be me- their prices have to be measured. So you have does it come up? Does it come a point where you have not enough stuff to buy? 
right? So that your people are just not buying buying things, or you have kind of the the technology that is continually trying to kind of suppress. Well, it is suppressing prices. It is. Right? So what? So you have all these different pressures out there, and I guess what I'm trying to lead at is, you know, are are it might because I would I would assume that all these guys are smarter than than me, right? And they see like that. Oh yeah, that we're doing something that isn't isn't going to work. But I I just don't get it. I don't I don't get like what's their logic behind doing what they're they're doing because I just can't see a positive end game. So, uh, so first off, don't sell yourself short. Uh, a lot of these, these so-called professional money managers and professional investors, um, you know, as, as distinguished and as brilliant as, as a lot of them are, uh, they're still susceptible to groupthink and a whole host of other behavioral biases that cause us to sort of act in, in predictably irrational ways. Um, and so, so I really, I, you know, we have this sense that other people know things that, you know, that we don't. In some cases, it's true, but but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, markets and, and different things go off the rails constantly. Um, there were, you know, even just fi- during the financial crisis, if more people had been aware of exactly what was going on in the excesses building in the system, you know, perhaps that, that wouldn't have been quite as, as severe of a drop. Um, but, but back to the inflation question. Um, you're exactly right. The discussions about a money supply quickly get complicated, but but if we try and keep it simple, um, in effect, what the central banks around the world are trying to do is increase the, the money supply. And if you can do that, everything else held equal, then you'll have more money representing essentially the same amount of goods and services or products, in which case the prices of those products and services will rise and we get our intended inflation. Yep. So that, and that's the, and the thing is, there's, I don't know if, yeah, I would say that there's just, there's, you know, there's not enough because essentially what they really what is if you were to look at like, you know, a, a bell curve, like what part of the bell curve are they targeting to to spend money? Like if you look at a bell curve and you kind of put in, you know, whether it's, you know, the middle class, whether it's, you know, America, whether it's Asia, whether it's South America, I mean, what what is like what what is the, the middle of that bell curve that the, the Fed and monetary policy right now is trying to to stimulate? Because that's where I come to the conclusion of, okay, if they're trying to stimulate like middle class, middle class, you know, are the ones that are, you know, effectively, you know, getting money to some degree. And they are, you know, whether it's from, you know, businesses investing and paying them more, which means they get more on their paycheck and then they go out and buy stuff. Then there's not enough stuff to buy. So it's, you know, there's always going to be kind of a cap to, to inflation or to prices. So is that who they're targeting? Are they tar- trying to target somebody else? Like what, what would you say is like their primary, like if we could get this demographic to spend money tomorrow by pressing this button, who, who would that be? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Whole, whole sort of other um, can of worms uh, talking about kind of the, the wealth effect. But, but so ultimately, if, if we do want to see inflation, right, we've got to have more people, more individuals, more businesses buying uh, products and, and goods and services. So there's a number of factors. There's, there's, you know, quite honestly, hundreds of factors that will influence that. But what's interesting is a lot of what the central banks have been doing um, has been reducing borrowing costs, easier or cheaper for businesses to do this. But at the same time, this has had the effect of inflating asset prices. And when you inflate asset prices, um, you tend to just make the rich a little bit richer. Uh, most of the poor and middle class don't have a lot of assets. And so, um, so, but conversely, they're the ones that actually spend on goods and services. A person who, who is wealthy um, 
if they have more money, they're not really going to go out and buy more food. Um, a lot of times they're not going to buy, you know, a, a higher volume products. Um, a lot of that money oftentimes just gets, you know, kind of safe. Their net worths go up. Fantastic. Um, what we've got to do is somehow find a way for the, the, the poor and middle class to get their own sort of form of, of stimulus because those are the types of people where if they do get a little bit more money, that money is going to actually be able to flow back into the economy. Got it. Okay. That makes total, that makes total sense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, so I guess kind of the transition as we, as we finalize our thoughts, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated issue. And, you know, I, I look at, and I'm not, you know, I, I, we haven't had this discussion in a few years, but you know, I've, I've always looked at, you know, the Austrian business cycle. I know you have, you know, normal, you know, standard business cycle theory, but the Austrian business cycle theory really shows that, you know, when there is this expansion of the money supply, when the Fed kind of comes in and tries to initiate what they're doing right now, right, it causes malinvestment, right? It causes people to, you know, has, have this euphoric idea of their, you know, I have a bunch of equity. Um, I'm making a good amount of money. Uh, I, you know, it, it creates this kind of, you know, false sense of euphoria which causes them to make bad decisions. And when they make those bad decisions, right, whether it's buying a too expensive of a car or buying too expensive of a home or, you know, spending more than they make using credit, that really starts to, you know, cause malinvestment, bad decisions, which ultimately comes home to, to roost and there's a correction that ensues. So as, as you've kind of looked at, okay, what's going on right now? What are some of the proposed uh, policy changes, initiatives, and you know, then analyze you know wh what the what the end game is. What's going to be the result? What have you like? What are, what are you using to make that conclude to make that conclusion? If that if that like setup and question makes sense, um, it it does. It's the the reality is that that's sort of the question on on everybody's mind is, is where does all this end? Um, when is the final day of reckoning? I, I couldn't disagree with, with, with anything that you said. Um, it, it's a very logical viewpoint. Uh, when you have cheap money just floating around, it, what, it, what it does is it lowers the bar. Um, so, you know, if you had interest rates at 5%, <clears throat> anyone borrowing money would have to find a way of, you know, producing value um, that essentially grew in excess of 5%. Um, and the cost of money sort of creates that, that floor. Uh, when you have money that's essentially free, it means anyone with, you know, a marginally decent idea um, can go out there and get funding at, and see if it works. Um, so, so there's kind of a, a, a give and take here. Um, the first is that, yes, it's, it's definitely going to create a lot of malinvestment. Um, the other part that, that I'm less clear or, or definitely more uncertain about is, um, you know, by setting that bar lower, um, does it really... What we've essentially done is said, okay, now a business that can generate, you know, 2% growth uh, is actually not a terrible business because money is dirt cheap. It can cover its, its debt costs and it can actually, you know, provide some value. So how that fits into the, the entire equation, um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit less certain, but, but you're right. I, down the road, it's, it's almost inevitable that we're going to see, you know, a rise in non-performing loans and we're going to see a lot of this credit that was extended during this environment um, come back to sort of, uh, you know, bite us the same way that, that subprime loans did, uh, you know, just, just seven or eight years ago. What are you, cause right now, so in this kind of, you know, is a kind of a, a, an extension of the same question, but what are you, what are you, cause right now you have like home ownership at an all time low, right? So it's not going to be the same thing that happens, you know, in 2008 to 2009. Okay. So what are you seeing as certain, certain signals that tell you, okay, we're, it's starting. Cause I'll give you a few examples. So last year, 
um, on the Real Estate Guys cruise, I, I found it time and time again where you had a ton of investors that started to invest in like 2010, right? And they had never invested before, but they suddenly got into this like perfect, it's like a perfect storm, right? They got into this like, you know, everybody was selling, everybody was going into foreclosure, everybody was, you know, banks are just want to get inventory off their books. So people got in and they made, you know, they were making a killing. But then last, you know, last year on the on the cruise specifically, and there's another instance too, but on the cruise specifically, there were people that were like, well, I just did this deal and this deal. And it was like, why did you do that? Like, that doesn't make any, you know, it was like buying in California where, you know, you had this, this tiny bit of equity and you had this type of rent and they had, and it was like, dude, why are you, that doesn't make, it doesn't make any, no, I didn't say that, right? That's what I was thinking. Uh, and then another thing too was this, you know, this was more recently, a couple months ago, where an individual was, he, he was like, he had a, he had a pension, he had, he was, he was retired, but he had like a million bucks in cash and he had, he was making um, more, more money than he was spending. So I'm like, well, and he was like seven years old. I'm like, what are you, like, why are you, why are you doing that? Like, why are you investing in a property? Why do you want to, well, it's a great time to buy and I want to invest and I want, and I'm like, you don't have to, like, what, what's the purpose be, behind it? Right. So I think you see kind of this, like, again, this, this, this euphoria or this, you know, this lack of understanding of, of cyclical, you know, cyclical you know, cycles. You, and, and I don't know, I, I, I see signs, but yet at the same time, I see like this going on for a few more years. So what do you like, what are some of the signals you're seeing? And, you know, what, what do you think maybe are, are some of the like, you know, culprits that if this happens, bang, you should keep your, you know, you should keep your, your glasses on. Right now, I, I have my gut feeling is that, you know, the, the party's going to keep going until there's absolutely nothing left um, in, in the tank. And so um, I do think that we could actually see a few more years um, of this. And we know, you know, there's there's tons of, of financial metrics out there that show that, you know, certain countries are leveraged, certain institutions are leveraged. You know, the banks are obviously watched a lot more carefully these days. Um, at least here in the U.S. And, and some of the you know other areas, but like for example in China, um, we, have, we have you know very little idea of what's going on behind the scenes there, um, and the size of their economy uh, makes things you know very uh, very dangerous in a sense. And you make that comment because China does not divulge probably you know a hundred percent of actually what is going on. Right. Yeah, they they um, they don't exactly. They're they're not forthright with a lot of their information, and even the information that comes out of there um, is often is often suspect. Um, so what you typically see in scenarios like this is is that you know the the, the good times um, will continue to last, but but kind of in the words of, of Hyman Minsky, that it, it's going to breed instability, and it's starting to do that. Um, and so, you know, just like we talked about, people taking out, you know, loans and mortgages at, you know, rock bottom interest rates, it's inflating asset prices. People feel pretty good right now. I mean, the, you know, with bond markets near all-time highs and the stock market at all-time highs, um, no matter what you own or have owned over the last few years, you've done exceptionally well. But um, um, you didn't do anything to do well. <laughs> it's kind of exactly. like it did, it did it for you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I have all this equity. It's like, well, you know. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, every once in a while, some people will, will, will take some of that equity and spend it, put it back into the economy. But like we talked about earlier, you know, a lot of these folks are, are so wealthy that, you know, the numbers in their bank account just go higher. 
Um, and, and that's that's ultimately the end of it. Um, so no, what, what I've been watching a lot is is these inflation numbers because the world has been preparing for deflation, and that's sort of the, the biggest uh, the biggest concern right now, and and rightly so because central banks have a lot of tools to combat excessive inflation. Um, as you can tell, they're at their wit's end trying to prevent deflation. Um, so if we continue further down the deflationary uh, path, um, you know, who knows, we end up in, in something similar to, to another financial crisis. Um, or, or on the other hand, if we do start to see inflation actually pick up, um, it, it's going to kind of reprice financial assets across the board. Um, you know, bond owners are going to recognize that inflation is creeping up, and so they're going to want they're going to want to charge a higher yield. Um, so we're going to see interest rates rise. If interest rates rise, bonds are going to become much more competitive um, versus versus equities, and so we're likely to see um, equities. Uh, pull back a little bit, um, but but right now there's there's kind of no indication one way or the other. You know the the U.S. economy is stuck at this you know apparently now it's a 1.2 percent you know growth rate, um, and, and and everywhere around the world everyone's just kind of stuck. You know the it's almost like the I hate to use the term but but secular stagnation. It's it just seems like it's everywhere. We've grown as far as we can. Economies are so big right now that they can't continue to grow at a, at a strong pace. Um, so we could continue to juice things for a while. Uh, money's probably going to stay cheap for for the, uh, a, a long, long time. Um, and and conversely, you know, that's that's going to have a big effect. Like I said, the, the the interest rates underpin all the value of all financial assets. And so, when interest rates stay this low, it's going to continue to to prop up uh, the stock market, just like we're seeing. And that's a big, yeah. And the stock market is one of those like benchmarks that has to do with with confidence, consumer confidence. And, you know, once when their bank accounts are big, they feel great. When their bank accounts are small, that's when they freak out. So, yeah, and I, I, I was hoping you'd argue with me more. Hopefully you say you, you have no idea what you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> but, I, but I just think it's, it's a topic. You said it, you know, as we were preparing for this, you said it, it's just kind of one of those like topics where you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know what the Fed's going to do. You don't know like what's going to, to cause a trigger. Um, but in the end, it's like the, the, the artificial stimulus and what they're trying to do is just it's just not working and they're running out of running out of options and who knows what's going to trigger it it could be like some massive technological advance um, it could be you know something happening with car loans and student loans it could be something happening in China it could be something I mean, who knows what the event is going to be but we're I, I mean I would conclude that we're in a fragile a fragile situation. Right. And when something does happen, you know, people will react probably more irrationally uh, because of the, the fragility of the situation. Mm -hmm. No, you're, you're right. And, and um, to say the same thing kind of a little bit differently, uh, we always talk about risk premium um, when it comes to investing, which is, you know, at the simplest level, the compensation you get for bearing risk. Um, well, in a lot of the financial markets, we've seen the risk premiums almost evaporate. Um, you were just not, you know, to put it simply, you were not getting compensated well uh, to carry risk in this type of environment. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think we're going to start to see uh, more people, more people recognize that. Um, but, but, you know, these, these money managers who are controlling, you know, literally billions and trillions of dollars of flows, uh, they got to put their money somewhere. You know, those guys can't take it out and stick it under a mattress. Um, they can't put it in a, you know, a, a savings account at, at JP Morgan. Uh, they got to find something to do with it. And, and so, uh, 
you know, it's, it's interesting to watch what they're choosing to do with it. And the fact that they're choosing to actually invest it at negative interest rates um, is, is interesting. And, and this, you know, this, this whole world is so, is so confounding. Um, you know, if you think about it, these, this negative interest rates, what it's actually doing is, is Japan, for example, um, they're actually borrowing their way back into prosperity. They're actually making money by being a, a debtor. Um, and so that's, you know, again, things are kind of turned upside down and you, you sit there scratching your head and you're going, you know, well, how, do, how does this work? Um, so you're right. There, there are way more questions out there right now than, than answers. Um, maybe the only certainty we can kind of agree on is that, you know, the, the situation, uh, thanks to a number of factors, financial markets move so much faster these days. And when, when there are curious uh, scenarios, it just means you got to pay a lot closer attention and be a lot more agile. You know, these folks that, that just have money kind of just, you know, sit in some place safe and it's been sitting there for a long time, whether it's invested in stocks. Um, you know, I'd, I'd suggest you find out where your money is and what it would take to move it around um, you know, if and when we do see things start to start to deteriorate. Yeah, because when that time comes, there's going to be opportunities, but it could be in a location where it's not as liquid as you think. And also from a psychological standpoint, if you had money for a, in a certain place for long enough, you know, you're, you're sudden, you know, wow, I should do something. It's going to be like, oh, you, know, you kind of wait, you waver. And so it's really under, you know, it's the education side of things. It says, okay, this is when you should move. This is how you're going to move. Uh, and this is, you know, again, what the mechanics are between, you know, money is here, money is going to go here, and then money will go here, you know, for the different scenarios. But all right, dude, well, NERP, maybe we'll do a NERP version three once Donald Trump is, or not Donald Trump, whoever's elected. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Do, do another one in, in six months, and I'm, I'm sure everything will be completely different. <laughs> Probably, most likely. All right, dude. Well, why don't you why don't you give? Uh, so you're let's let's transition a second and then, then then finish this thing off. But right now, you know, you you are you're working on a new project, right? You have a new you have a new site. Um, you discovered this this uh, this model that you're super stoked about, and you're trying to get off the ground. Why don't you take a moment and explain that, and and uh, tell our listeners how they can access more information about that. Sure. So the uh, I've been I've been studying and watching the markets for for decades now, um, and and it's it's very entertaining, um, but it's an emotional roller coaster, and it it's um, frankly it's it's difficult. You know, a money manager who's right six out of ten times is considered to be at the top of their game, uh, top of the industry, and uh, and so you spend all this time and energy, uh, you know. Always trying to figure out what's what's going on in the world and keep tabs on you know, every the latest data point out of every country and all this stuff and it, it ends up uh, overloading your brain after a while and so what we found is um, and, and this trend started you know many years ago but what we found is you end up sort of in these environments where you can you, your investment decisions can be assisted by a computer um, that is essentially running through a whole lot of that data for you. Um, and, um, and so what, um, what my team and I have done is we've gone out, we did a lot of research, um, and it turns out actually all we had to do was aggregate a lot of research because over the last 40, 50 years, uh, tons of academics and other folks out there have, have literally studied the stock market from almost every angle you could imagine. And um, they've, they've discovered these so-called market anomalies, which are these, these predictable patterns in prices and asset prices that really shouldn't otherwise exist. And for a long time, the, the entire academic community didn't know 
what to make of it. Um, they didn't know why it existed. You know, a lot of proponents of, of efficient markets said, well, that, you know, that really can't exist. Um, but, but it does. And as we've, uh, as we've learned more about behavioral finance and behavioral psychology uh, in the last five to 10 years, we're starting to realize that these patterns exist and actually are exploitable uh, because of the, the irrationalists of, uh, irrationalness of, of investors. And there's, there's, in a sense, a predictability uh, to that, that irrational behavior. And so, so the company that we just started is called Model Investing. And the idea is that we've built a series of investment models that actually go and track what's going on in the financial markets and essentially act as a decision support tool. They'll tell you um, where your, your investment should be allocated or what your investment should be in. Um, for the following month. Now, notice that we're not forecasting out years. We're not forecasting out decades. Um, this is exactly just one month. So um, we call this performance-based investing. Essentially, what we're doing is we're looking out and we're saying, okay, based on the current economic landscape, what's likely to outperform during the next month? And then as we go through that month, we're going to reevaluate the scenario. And so what we've done is we've, we've basically made these available to um, to the public um, and you know investors can can actually follow our models exactly or they can use the analysis that we provide to kind of create you know their own investment strategy uh, but it's a very unique way of investing that sort of capitalizes on what's considered the only the only lasting market anomaly uh, which is momentum um, and it does it in a way where you know it's, it's very low cost or to self-service you can manage your own 401k or you can manage your own tsp account um, using some of the recommendations that our, our models create. And uh, we did all kinds of testing when we put these together. And, and you know, I, I, I'm a confident person, but, but the, the humble side of me has to admit that these investment models have actually performed better than I have over the last uh, 15 years or so. Uh, they foresaw things that, that, that I did not. Um, and, and the beauty is those models make all their decisions objectively. They're not subject to the behavioral biases and the emotions uh, that go, you know, that go hand in hand with investing. So a lot of times when I was tempted to get everything out of the market, you know, these investment models were saying, no, now's the time to really be in the market. Um, and, and the vast majority of the time, the, the models ended up being right. So it, 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 that's, so I was, it was interesting. I was on, I was on vacation this past week and I was reading, uh, I was reading, reading, a reading a book and one of the ideas in there, it said that, if if a human if a human being knew everything about mathematics, they they could look at anything and understand exactly what's going on, why it occurred, and what's going to happen in the future. And so I think you look at and again, this is probably a topic for another day, but you look at just all the data that's out there and allow and all of it that's being you know all of it really that's digitized, and really looking at trends and using you know whether it's quantum computing or using you know other other methods to really crunch and and, and formulate uh, patterns uh, using using you know artificial intelligence and so forth really does create more accuracy and it's not just you know on the investing front but you know on the in insurance front right looking at car insurance or health insurance or life insurance right it really creates better probability models so it's fascinating that you kind of are are on that trend line um, as we're kind of going into this, you know, this uh, space of maybe per perfect math, per perfect numbers, which I don't know if that's, it's, it's a possibility because you always have the irrational side, but if you can start to predict exactly what a human being is going to do in this circumstance and <laughs> given this, what they've done in the past and what they're getting, you know, it's really, it's fascinating to think about, but if you look at a lot, you know, companies today like Amazon, Overstock, they use, you know, these, pr this predictive analysis to determine like what you're going to buy, what ads you should see. 
Um, you know, what are your what are your favorites? What are the recommendations? And then they'll you know they'll pre ship pre ship stuff to a local warehouse because there's a probability that you're going to click on that thing and buy it, right? So I you look at it, you know, in the retail and the commerce world, e-commerce world, but the same thing applies to investing, I would assume. No, you, you, you nailed it. Um, this whole concept, really, it just boils down to pattern recognition, right? And, and the, the more, um, the, the better that companies can, can essentially recognize different patterns to their, you know, inventory or sales or whatever it might be, the more that they can optimize. And so we're seeing this in every business around the world. Um, it's been slowly working its way into the investment business for some time now. Uh, and so, so it's inevitable that, that really moving forward, um, computers and, and sort of these advanced algorithms are going to be doing a lot more of the data crunching um, and analysis side of things for us. And frankly, it's more than you know, even a team of, of investment analysts can do. Um, it, and typically, it, it, at the very least, provides a, a fantastic input into the, into the decision making process. Whenever you add a human being, it's, it adds subjectivity. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, people right. have we're all, opinions, you have biases, they carry things, and they're, they're you know, of course, fallible. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm one of those, you know, people who can admit that, that we're, we're all crazy. In some way or another, uh, we're all kind of nuts. We all act irrationally from time to time. Um, and unfortunately, uh, money and financial decisions tend to magnify that effect. Uh, there's, there's a lot more on the line, and so we become more emotional. So this is a, just kind of a unique way for us to sort of, you know, remove the subjectivity, um, see what, you know, a completely uh, objective approach to, to, to investing would actually, would actually recommend. Um, and then, like I said, we're trying to help out, you know, some of these kind of these ordinary folks, the, the, the middle and lower class who are just contributing money to a 401k, uh, but just want to be able to, you know, have that 401k better positioned, um, you know, for, for, for what's ahead. Well, so tell so tell listeners how they can learn because I know this is you know th- this project is, is is kind of in its infancy, um, but it's live. You know, you're you're blogging about it, you're talking about it. People are using the service. You know, what how can people learn learn more? Yeah, the uh, the company itself is called Model Investing, um, and our, our website is probably the, the easiest and fastest way to kind of find out more about us. Um, and the website is just modelinvesting.com. Cool. And there, like, what's so what's on? What can they expect on your website? Do you guys have articles? Do you have like a trial? Do you have like what? What are some of the services? Yeah, we offer a free free one month trial uh, for everyone. And uh, we're you know we're of the position that if we're not benefiting you, we don't we actually don't want your money. Uh, and so so we offer that three month trial to see if you know if we're a good fit and you like our approach and style to investing. And um, and if you do at any point, we, you know we offer a, a, a prorated refund. So what we're really trying to do is, is make the service available to as many people as possible. Um, and our price point is is very low. We actually offer um, access to all of our investment models for less than the price of a, of a monthly gym membership. Wow. Um, so you know most people have that membership kind of sitting off to the side. They don't really use it that often. Um, you know now for the same price, you can basically have access to to you know cutting edge um, investment models that you know, have a very, very strong track record of, of, um, of investing through all types of economic conditions. Um, some of our models actually even profited during the financial crisis uh, because they were actually able to recognize the, the vastly deteriorating conditions um, in the early stages of that collapse and literally moved um, either to cash or to bonds to ride out the storm. Um, so, you know, we, we, we don't expect anyone to, to immediately embrace, you know, our investment models as the, you know, as taking complete control over their, their retirement accounts. Um, but it's something we want people to get a little bit more accustomed to. We want people to start watching and follow and recognize that, you know, there are other solutions out there. Um, and they can get more sort of fine-tuned guidance um, in terms of where their portfolio should be allocated at a given point in time. Cool. 
All right, dude. Well, it is. I've, I've known about this for for some some time now, and I'm I'm excited that it's finally launched. And uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. So for those of you listening, you know, it's uh, you know, Matt Matt's as smart as they come. Follow him. He blogs quite a bit. He's always posting his wisdom on online. So uh, go check him out. We'll put all the links to contact him in the in the show notes. Uh, but thank you for listening today. I know it's been kind of one of those topics where it's like, uh, you could hopefully you're, hopefully you're to this point in the podcast and I haven't turned it off already, but. You know, it's one of those topics where, yeah, it might seem cumbersome, but at the same time, you know, it's it's something to pay attention to to uh, to look at. You know, what could potentially happen in the future, and when it does, how to uh, profit from it. So, that being said, Matt, it's awesome to have you on. Thanks again for uh, for your time, and uh, and for you folks listening, we'll uh, we'll be on uh, next week, and look forward to uh, to talking to you then. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Patrick. You've been listening to the Wealth Standard Radio Show your gold standard in everything financial.